Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome back. This is Daring Dialogues. I'm your host, Shante Charles, and this is our Teachable Tuesday segment. Um, this is where we host our Teachable Tuesday segment, although we do have another page, Facebook page, Daring Dialogues. Share, like it, and follow. We are also on our other days of the week on Daring, Dar- Daring Dialogues IG. So if you want to know where we are on the other days of the week at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time talking about just about everything, uh, join us on IG Daring Dialogues at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I come over here on Tuesdays because Tuesdays is our Black Table Talk features and segments. It's where we discuss all things Black. It is uh, where we focus on issues that pertain specifically to uh, the Black community. Now, most of the books that we're currently reading through Daring Dialogues are mainly all by African-American authors. Um, or in partnership with African-American authors. So we do on our platform try to give um, as much attention to black authors as we possibly can. And we are continuing in the book, Black Women, Black Love by Diane M. Stewart. Diane is a professor at Emory University. And this is has been a powerful study on the role of black women in our history, on the role of uh, black love and how black love has carried our community, has carried black women. It really, she really does a great job of detailing how black women have fought against the things that come against black love. And I say that because I really feel like it's important for people who are having these dialogues, who are having this conversation about black love and black men and black women to really dig into your own history and not just go off of um, what's happening socially. And I like to say what is being manipulated socially, um, the social engineering that's trying to occur, um, the propaganda um against black men and black women coming together in relationship. There is a whole lot of propaganda around trying to get us to go against each other, trying to get us to hate each other, trying to get us to hate one another, trying to get us to hate ourselves and to look outside of ourselves for love. I don't want to start preaching, but that is what's going on. So the more you understand and dig into your own history and understand how much black people have fought to be together, (laughs) you know that what's occurring in our society right now is really social engineering and propaganda. And so over here, we deal in truth. We deal in facts. We deal in reality. We deal in historical truths and historical facts. And so this book has been very helpful in highlighting that. We are in chapter four, which is Black Love in Captivity, Mass Incarceration and the Depletion of the African-American Marriage Market. There's not a day that goes by that I've seen this year that there's not some story that has come out about 
an African-American male being exonerated for crimes he did not commit, where he has spent 20, 30, 40 years serving a prison term sentence for a crime he did not commit. And in many of those cases, um, there's not a monetary restitution that has happened for all the years that that man has lost. All the years that his family has lost with him, all his years to find black love and create a black family that has been stolen from him. So I, I really appreciate that she does bring this to the forefront as to why, what was happening with mass incarceration. And we know, as we talked about last time, that the rates at which black men were being incarcerated far, far exceeded their number in the population, right? And that the sentencing, that is what we talked about last time, the sentencing was unfair and unequal. So there was a 2010 Fair Sentencing Act that was trying to reduce sentencing disparity. It didn't get rid of all of the disparity. It just reduced it. Okay. Now we're going to continue the talk as we begin to deal with the Fair Sentencing Act, which applied retroactively for the first time since it was put into effect and how in, since 2016, DAs across the nation were beginning to pledge to implement equitable and compassionate practices that were premised on justice rather than blind obsession with conviction at any cost. We know that um, conviction, conviction at any cost was one of the reasons why the um, Central Park Five, now known as the Exonerated Five, had things happen to them the way it did because somebody crossed the line and they were trying to get convictions at any cost, at the cost of justice and also at the cost of those young men's lives. Let's continue. Federal and state criminal justice reforms in recent times could lead to positive, appreciable outcomes for black communities. Yet, even with reports that black adult in prison rates have dropped in recent years, current trends still bear the footprint of previous administrations that set mass incarceration in motion. And with such astronomical numbers of black men still entering the prison system at rates far above black women, over the past three and a half decades, black love and marriage, especially amongst the poor and vulnerable classes, have faced daunting challenges and remain on the receiving end of our nation's protracted war on drugs and crime. By the mid-1990s, a general population survey of low-income urban black women revealed that 22% were romantically involved with most likely low-skilled black men who had experienced incarceration. What else should we expect when one in four black men born since the late 1970s was incarcerated by his mid-30s? The deleterious impact of mass incarceration on black love and marriage surfaces not only in tabulating the large number of men who are missing from the black marriage market, 
but also in comprehending how mass incarceration ruins love relationships and affects the daily experiences of those challenged by the constraints of living behind bars. The ensuing stories bring us into the homes and hearts of black women who love, marry, and struggle to stay connected to their incarcerated husbands and partners. They witness years of humiliation and abuse at the corrupt hands of the predatory capitalists behind the prison industrial complex and the public servants connected to it. Navigating the correctional system demands patience, unrelenting inner strength, and flexibility. Resilient couples have found creative ways to survive the impunity with which officers of the law and the wider criminal justice system violate their rights and human dignity. But many marriages have crumbled under the <clears throat> under this ubiquitous enterprise. Beyond the emotional price incarcerated men, their wives and their children pay as they accommodate new constraints. For poor black families, the financial cost of imprisonment is unsustainable. In many cases, criminal justice legislation of the 80s and 90s punished ex-convicts even after release from prison, impacting their chances to rebuild their lives and preserve their marriages. Most troubling of all, mass incarceration feeds and feasts on policies regulating public housing, welfare, and other social services. When black couples are trapped within the web of these intersecting systems, there seems to be no way out. Their relationships often deteriorate, their marriages disintegrate, or never materialize at all, and their children are repeatedly victimized. Since mass incarceration affects a significant number of black women in black marriages, it is important to survey its damaging legacy through their eyes. Black Women Prisoners of Incarcerated Love In the 21st century, the predicament of loving an incarcerated black man has become a fact of life for increasing numbers of black women across the nation. Thus, if 44% of black women today have a family member in prison, hand raised, <laughs> what do their lives look like when that family member is a husband? Over the past 40 years, black women have come to know all too well the truth of their refrain, no one, no one to love, from Luther Vandross' 1986 song, Give Me the Reason. Among them are the tens of thousands whose fiancés and spouses are not quite missing, but simply absent. The prisoners of incarcerated love, women such as Khadija Abdullah Fardon, Jackie McPhail, and Aisha Bandele, know what it's like to be engaged or married to men behind bars. Their stories of loving incarcerated black men are the palimpsests upon which Tayari Jones described her narrative and American marriage. Roy and Celestial, the two central characters of her novel, reveal the truth that black marriages are increasingly entangled with the carceral state and its imprisoning institutions in America. Jones is not wrong to name this arrangement an American marriage because America's public officers and servants from the highest officer of the nation to the officers policing the streets have indeed turned millions of black women into prisoners of love, married to men serving sentences. Sadly, our demographic republic's wider heritage of slavery, white racial terror, and white privilege has made the phenomenon of incarcerated black marriages as American as apple pie.
A powerful indictment of America's increasingly common marital arrangement channels her protagonist's reflections and exchanges after Roy is arrested for allegedly sexually assaulting a woman six years older than his mother while lodging at a hotel during a trip to his hometown of Elo, Louisiana. Celestial recounts the events of that early morning, emphasizing the discrepancy between what she knew to be true and false and what the police and Roy's accuser had reported. I was still awake when the door burst open. I know they kicked it in, but the written report says that a front desk clerk handed over the key and the door was opened in a civilized manner. Comparing her version of what occurred on the evening in question with the accuser surfaces a tension that resides between belief and knowledge. The accuser was confident that the man who twisted the knob on her door just before midnight was Roy, the same man who had helped her carry her ice bucket back to her room after he noticed her arm in a sling during a chance encounter at the ice machine. And sometimes uh, we wonder why. Black men, <clears throat> black men are reluctant sometimes to offer help. My husband already knows. If I'm not there, find somebody else to help them. <laughs> it just, unfortunately, it has to be that way in America because of scenarios like this. Roy had even lifted a window in her chamber that she could not manage to lift on her own stopped the water from running in her toilet and alerted her on his way out that the doorknob was not secure. It was dark, but she believed she recognized Roy, the man she met at the ice machine. Roy, she said, may be smart, and he may have learned by watching TV how to cover his tracks, but he couldn't erase her memory. But she couldn't erase mine either. Roy was with me all night. She doesn't know who hurt her, but I know who I married. Despite Celestial's testimony that after returning to the room with a filled bucket of ice, Roy laid next to her the entire night, his conviction changed their futures forever. Celestial soon underwent her initiation into the unenviable life she would lead as the wife of a convicted felon. There were new codes and taboos to follow if she ever hoped to see him while in prison. Show no skin. Don't wear an underwire bra unless you want to fail the metal detector test and get sent home. Rehearsing the dress code policy, she reminded it reminded her of a time at Spelman, her undergraduate college, when she attended a required convocation lecture delivered by a man who had been wrongfully imprisoned for decades. Celestial poured her recollections into the words she saved for Roy, recalling too that the white woman who pointed the finger at the ex-con spoke along with him. Even though they stood right there in front of me, they felt like a lesson from the past. <clears throat> a phantom from Mississippi. I knew that things like this happened to people, but by people, I didn't mean us. She wrote to her husband after her first trip to visit him behind bars. Beyond Fiction The visitation rules that Celestial obeyed in order to see her husband behind bars are enforced not only in fiction. Accomplished author and activist Aisha Bandele seems none other than a living and breathing Celestial. She, too, was chastised for wearing an underwire bra during her first prison visit to the man who would become her husband. When she initially encountered Rashid behind prison walls in 1990, Aisha was just a 23-year-old college student. She eventually married him in 1995 and gave birth to their daughter in 2000. 
Once their relationship turned romantic after two years of volunteer teaching at his prison, Aisha faced a new set of obstacles every time she approached the entrance to the castle that housed the man she loved. As a girlfriend rather than a teacher, Aisha was handled differently by prison guards. Though tempered slightly by the fact that she had been a regular volunteer there, <clears throat> the degree of animosity was still daunting. Aisha was now lumped in with all the wives, siblings, and parents of inmates who were treated with hostility and suspicion. After she married Rashid and the couple was allowed conjugal visits, the scrutiny was unbearable. Getting processed into visiting rooms across New York State means police have the right to scan even my tampons and hold them up to the light. Aisha explains in her memoir, The Prisoner's Wife. But as she describes the typical scene leading up to her private moments, the surveillance goes even deeper. Before I enter the trailer site where Rashid and I will spend our time, it will be my panties, diaphragm, and KY jelly that male officers hold out in public, often as a company of inmates is walking past, five, maybe eight feet from us. They have fingered my black silk panties, the ones I bought for only my husband to see. They've shaken down my bra, my nightgown, and even though it is sheer. Aisha soon realized that the scrutiny and exposure she faced undergoing clearance at the prison paled in comparison to the strip searches her husband and his fellow inmates endured daily. <clears throat> After years, excuse me. <clears throat> After years of experiencing, observing, and listening to others undergo inspections, interrogations, and suspicions and searches, Aisha arguably reached the most unexpected conclusion for those whose lives remain untouched by incarceration. There's a kind of freedom in being forced to place yourself in the hands of people who hate you, have them hold you up to the light, scan you, scrutinize you. This is what I've come to believe, finally, that there is a purity in sharing when there's nothing left to hide, no spaces for modesty or retreat. Aisha's awareness of how prison polices seem to leave no place for human dignity to reside is what ultimately disclosed a deeper truth about the human condition and about black love and captivity. In prison environments, the, per the perpetual isolation and exposure, Aisha realized that she and Rashid have no camouflage are as naked and displayed as the Venus Hottentot. All we have, all we are, and all we hope to be is out on the table, dissected and documented. We can either wither apart and give in to the madness or else struggle, keep honoring that despite everything, we can still love and make the love feel good. Making the love feel good between them, the holy communion they shared, allowed them to claim their dignity and recognized their freedom while under surveillance. This was worth the four-hour bus ride she regularly took to visit her husband, but it was an arrangement they would have to endure longer than they hoped. After losing an appeal to overturn her husband's second-degree murder conviction, something fell off Aisha's shelf inside and broke. For 14 years, the couple had suffered the humiliating intrusions from prison guards who desecrated their sacred intimate moments their only moments as a couple to be free, human, and authentic. Perhaps the most brutalizing were all of the times Rashid had to leave the trailer during their visits to verify his whereabouts. Such security checks occurred at least seven times per visit, yet Aisha held on to the hope that her husband would be released into her arms one foreseeable day. 
when Rashid told her that they experienced time differently, that with each passing day, you see a little bit of your life slip away, while every day that goes by for me is one day closer to having what I've always wanted. Aisha was silent and saddened and scared by the truth. Her struggle to come to terms with their irreconcilable temporal locations left her suspended between that newly raw truth and the thick blanket of hope she was so accustomed to wrapping around her heart. Somehow, among the riotous thoughts raging through her mind, she always chose hope. At the impossible crossroads of Rashid's denied appeal, the thing that fell off the shelf and broke was not her love for Rashid. After all these years, she determined, I owed myself and I owed Rashid and I owed our relationship more than disappearing. In the very least, even if from that day forward, I never went up into a prison again, if I never saw Rashid again, I owed us the truth. The whole entire out loud in public truth, which meant I had to admit that despite all of the losses and all of the hurt, there were these moments in Rashid's arms that were a luxury of bliss. There were these times when we shared an absolute embarrassment of love. There were days that had set a standard for days. Aisha's memoir testifies to the enduring power of love in the midst of tragedy. As the years passed, Aisha found sanctuary in the embarrassment of love that she and Rashid established to nurture one another through an impossible situation. Despite all the trespasses upon the sanctuary their love provided, Aisha and Rashid's love nourished and nurtured their imagination and, in fact, transported them into shared temporal location, one that transcended the captivity they could not escape. Captivity, the carceral state, inevitably conquered their marriage, but not their love. After spending seven years in prison, meeting, marrying, and conceiving a child with Aisha over another 10 years, and dreaming across yet another nine victorious appeals that never came, Rashid was released from prison, but not into Aisha's loving arms. He was immediately and permanently deported to his native Guyana in 2009. For 26 years behind bars, Rashid had fantasized about his release day. 12 years into captivity, Aisha took center stage in the scenarios he imagined. 17 years into his sentence, the birth of their daughter intensified his imagination. He had five love languages for his wife and daughter and no chances to demonstrate his fluency in each. With her black love story bruised and dismembered, Aisha would end up raising Nisa alone in New York, away from the only man who knew her body, its fears, and every nerve and yearning. The inner turmoil, loneliness, and irreversible punishment of Rashid's deployment depleted her resources and compelled her to follow through on a decision she knew she would regret for the rest of her life but still had to make. I couldn't play at house or marriage anymore. I think that's what I said to Rashid finally. I needed the real thing or I needed to woman up and do this on my own. That breakup, though it left me with a grief so profound, it has no name I can call is something that feels akin to losing my husband, best friend, father, and brother on the very same day, not losing them so much as sending them away and banishing them. Aisha and Rashid eventually divorced, not because their love had expired, but because the accumulated wounds of a life spent married to an incarcerated man imposes a prison sentence of its own on innocent wives, 
especially those who are poor and exploitable. Poor Black Wives, Financing and Surviving Mass Incarceration Asa's experience, as difficult as it was, could have been much worse had she not had the resources to sustain herself and her daughter. Although she underwent rough financial patches, including the time Asia was college-educated and self-supporting as a poet and author. Thousands of Black women with incarcerated husbands find financial resources hard to come by. Therapists concur that financial constraints are among the principal causes of marital conflict, alienation, and disillusion. And Black marriages, arguably the least wealthy in the nation, are overrepresented amongst financially troubled and broken marriages in America. For Black women contending with an incarcerated spouse or partner, the capitalist enterprises of America's system has saddled them with additional exorbitant fees reminiscent of the days of peonage and sharecropping. Among America's imprisoned population, the strain of paying for one's crime in time spent behind bars, underpaid and unpaid labor, and the almighty dollar can be unbearable for the vast majority of prisoners and their families. Since numerous studies have shown a strong correlation between poverty and crime, it is not surprising that most black women with husbands and partners in prison are poor. With the proliferation of the prison industrial complex and the bevy of crime legislation intended to deter illegal drug activity and other criminal behavior, black men were locked up at astonishing rates to pay for their violations. However, they pay it financially as well. If they were married and attempting to sustain a relationship with their wives, their spouses too were forced to foot the bills of private and state entities. These entities including private telephone companies, security companies, vending machine companies, commissaries, charge exorbitant fees for their products, forcing inmates, wives, and partners to choose between sustaining their relationships with the men they love behind bars and supplying their own basic necessities and, in many cases, those of their children. The phone call is one of the most immediate and consistent means of spousal reunification after incarceration has occurred. While some incarcerated men deliberately distance themselves from their wives and families, others lose motivation or adopt new identities within prison culture when they are not able to connect with their wives or partners through regular phone calls. In one study of the incarcerated African-American fathers and family relations, a 42-year-old participant with the pseudonym Lamar maintained contact with his children through weekly telephone calls, but he had not spoken with his wife since incarceration. Lamar's drug problem had scarred their marriage, and his incarceration for a burglary committed to support his habit made matters only worse. Another 29-year-old participant called Ed spoke about the loneliness and abandonment his wife experienced. Me and my wife just had a serious confrontation because I forgot about my wife and focused all of my attention on the kids. Ed's neglect of his wife might just be what wives who have legitimate concerns about maintaining intimate connections with their incarcerated husbands prefer. Even when conjugal visitation programs allow couples to enjoy the intimacy, some wives have important reasons to hesitate or disengage. This was Jerome and Lawanda's predicament. Jerome had sampled drugs while serving in Vietnam during his 10 years of service in the Marines. 
After returning home with marketable skills, job insecurity led him down a path of substance abuse. Jerome's wife, Lawanda, a licensed practical nurse, harbored serious concerns about her sexual and personal health and actually refused intercourse because she feared she might become infected with HIV. Her husband was not only a former intravenous drug user, but also confined to an all-male facility where opportunities for coerced and, and desired same-sex relationships abounded. She was afraid that he might have had some homosexual activity while in prison, which would put him at risk of AIDS. Others who have the means, time, and desire to visit their incarcerated husbands combat emotional alienation through regular face-to-face -face contact. Muriel tried to stick it out with her incarcerated husband and remain married to him for a decade after he went to prison. Eventually, she found that her resources could no longer sustain her in the marriage as she tried to make the best choices for her daughter and carry the load of parenting alone. To be honest, I did not take and expose my daughter to that a lot because I didn't want her to see the environment and I didn't want her to see her father in that state. And a couple of times that I did take her down, she couldn't understand. When you get to that door and you have to say goodbye, they want to know why they can't get on the van or the bus. And they, the children, turn around with this look on their face. Isn't he coming, mom? No, he's not coming. He has to stay here. In fact, the fathers of Muriel's two daughters were incarcerated, and although she ultimately severed romantic and marital ties with both of them, she was determined to keep the lines of communication open between her daughters and their fathers. The weight of financing the phone calls from two inmates, however, demanded that she compromise. When her ex-husband called, she had to pay $10 if her daughter spoke with him for 10 minutes, basically a dollar a minute. That was money she just didn't have lying around. So Muriel insisted that her ex-husband use cost-effective means of communication with his daughter. With Christelle's father, she said, I had to put my foot down and I told him that he couldn't call for a while because it became too expensive for me. And I told them, I understand that you want to talk to her, but you're going to have to find another way of doing it. Call Christelle just to say hello and how you doing and then pick up the pen and write to her. You know she can write. She has very good penmanship. She's going to have to start writing you because it becomes so expensive and the cost becomes so enormous that it takes away other things that you could be doing with your money. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be a B-I-T-C-H, but I have to look out for our well-being and my child's well-being because I'm the only source of income they have. Muriel's predicament illustrates how black women's incomes drive the flow of capital required to sustain relationships with incarcerated black men. During the 1990s, collect phone calls, the only calls prisoners could make, entailed both collect call fees at long distance rates and a surcharge for each call placed, yielding a revenue of up to $15,000 per year for each installed phone in a prison facility. While Muriel placed a serious limit on the amount she would give to filling the coffers of these companies, Aisha regularly paid monthly phone bills of $500 and $600. In some months, her bill even reached the $800 range. Knowing that Rashid was not at liberty to call her when, she wished, when he wished, Asa was forced to take expensive cab rides and cancel appointments to make sure she was home on time to receive the planned collect call. 
Current prison reform activism at the state and national levels has advanced steps to outlaw predatory policies requiring prisoners and their families to pay exorbitant fees for collect calls. Among recent failed and ongoing efforts was the bipartisan 2018 Inmate Calling Technical Corrections Act introduced by Senator Tammy Duckworth at the 115th Congress on March 8, 2018. The bill would have, would have prohibited decades-old telecommunications policies in all carceral facilities nationwide if only it had not been stalled in Congress. Despite the setback of the federal bill, a small ray of hope is on the horizon within the Connecticut General Assembly, which is on the precipice of passing an act that will provide cost-free telecommunication services for incarcerated persons. Connecticut inmates pay some of the most expensive rates for collect calls in the nation, and the state's $7.7 million profits from collect calls alone during 2018 paint a clearer picture of how ruthless these corporate entities behind these schemes actually are. Undoubtedly, many will follow the outcomes of these efforts. However, extensive reforms are needed elsewhere to topple the stranglehold on Black families, not to mention Black love and marriage after all. Prisoners and their wives need more nourishment than words alone to maintain healthy and balanced lives. They need and deserve the pleasure of life, eating together, shared vulnerability, romantic intimacy, and a therapeutic environment that rehabilitates these and celebrates small victories, whatever they may be. Most couples separated by incarceration know not to expect these comforts, not even the comfort of sharing a home-cooked meal together during visits. Since visitors are typically barred from bringing food into visiting rooms and are compelled to purchase meals from the vending machines, often after costly long-distance journeys, the expense of purchasing food can be prohibitive. Family members also face restrictions when sending packages to their incarcerated loved ones. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. In some cases, they can purchase products only from an approved mail order company and do not have the option of comparison shopping for the lowest price. The culture of surveillance family members encounter when visiting loved ones in prison is also costly. It reduces visitors to the status of criminal suspects and gives license to those in charge to treat them with indignity. And treatment can vary depending upon one's racial class status. At the Londonbury Prison in Burlington, Vermont, wives perceiving to be fast living were often strip searched while good wives seldom underwent the ordeal. One wife perceived to be fast living described how strip searches were especially degrading when I had my cycle because you have to remove your feminine product in front of them. Wives, partners, and family members of prison inmates describe visits as stressful and demeaning. They can find themselves standing on two, three, even four hour lines before receiving clearance to visit with their loved ones. When lines extend beyond the prison doors, even in the deadening winter cold, no pity is taken on mothers with infants and young children. They have to wait their turn like everyone else. While standing in line, visitors must learn the rules of when to ask questions, how to ask questions, <clears throat> and visitors can also be turned away if their attire is de deemed improper or unacceptable. One inmate's 63-year-old grandmother was denied visitation because she had on a sweatshirt that was the wrong color. 
The rules, especially when applied haphazardly and unfairly, produce an endless series of impediments. They wear down wives, partners, and family members, and erode life-giving connections with loved ones that research shows are essential to achieving the best outcomes for incarcerated men during and after their sentences. Shanita Hubbard says that visiting an inmate you love is its own kind of prison and in many respects aptly identifies the family member or friend intending to see a loved one behind bars as a visiting inmate. At least this is how visitors are typically treated at carceral facilities. In a 2017 article, Hubbard provides a gripping account of what it means for visiting inmates to wait at Rikers Island, where the experience is particularly vile. Um, I'm going to read this and then I'm going to stop for today. The line consists of mostly black and brown women and children with a few men. You all have an unspoken agreement to keep small talk to a minimum. Even without words, the looks on everyone's faces as the dogs stalk around tell a deeper story. You see shame on the face of an older black man that's told to shut up by the guards when he says he can't stand for very long. You wait in line for two hours without any clarity or information. The dogs disappear. Did they detect drugs? Was there an issue inside the building? Is there a lockdown? What's taking so long? You all wonder, but only one amateur visiting inmate makes the mistake of asking a correction officer. No one has told him the rules to this joint, but when the CO screams, shut the F up or lose your visit, he quickly learns. It's now been three hours of just standing, waiting, and stewing in rage. You finally enter the building only to be met with more lines. You wait in the line to be searched. Someone is screaming. Open your effing mouth in your face. You freeze. They scream louder. Open your mouth or go home. And of course, there are a whole lot more expletives um, in this reading. But I'm not going to say them. Black love and captivity. A couple of things that the author noted that um, I myself experience having a relative that what that is back incarcerated again which i talked about i think on the last uh the last broadcast we were here oh my god exorbitant fees for calling calling around trying to find out where your relative may be incarcerated or locked up um having to buy certain cards or phones, etc., in order to use with that relative once you find out where they are. Um, writing letters that get returned because for some reason that relative has been moved to another center and you don't find out until you contact that relative again. Seeing what the requirements are to send a package and then you send a package and the relative never gets it and the package never gets sent back to you. So that's just money and gifts and books or whatever gone. Um, yeah, all of that. Um, thankfully, my husband has never, you know, dealt with um, incarceration so I don't have the story that they have, but I like to read outside of my own experiences so that I can learn better how to empathize with people and understand what is actually happening, what is actually going on. 
Um, I do have one friend that was dating someone who was incarcerated and he was incarcerated for 20 years. And I think of those 20 years, she waited for like 14 of those 20 years, I guess, when they met. But he was incarcerated because of something his friend did. And he was in the car and they gave him 20 years. Um, So she, you know, I saw her endure that process. I saw her cry and mourn and grieve um, through those denials of appeal. And thankfully, he finally ended his his term and he was released and they finally got married and they have a beautiful child together. And hers was a good turnout. But that's not the story for a lot of people. Um, As the writer talked about, this system, that incarceral system, destroys many lives, many families. Um, some people's marriages don't make it through that. Some people get divorced. Um, in, in very drastic cases, some people end up taking their life because of the pressure of what they are enduring. So it's just something we need to, to be mindful of, be aware of as we are talking about, especially with the season that we're in. I don't want to say the season we're in, but everybody knows what they should be exercising, what right and privilege they should be exercising. If you have the ability to exercise your political right and you're not deterred from it because of a charge, a felony, whatever, based on your state, please go out and exercise your political right to make change in your local society in your state society especially if you have things on the ballot at this time that have to do with prison that has to do with sentencing and all of that that has to do with your judges and who is uh coming up for selection please go out and exercise your right i know it's early the early part of it right now before the official day Um, but yeah, please do that at this time. If you want to comment on the reading today, if you have a loved one that is incarcerated and you want to, um, speak up today about some of the things and processes that are being endured, please feel free to, um, let me know that you want to be added and I will add you in. Um, what's the other thing? Oh, when I was younger, the same relative who is now reincarcerated, I would go with his mother, my grandmother. Um, she would take me to see him at the facilities. So I remember, um, as a child, that was like one of the places that I went for the first time that was outside of my community was to a prison to visit my uncle and it was very I just remember the environment being very sterile I remember there were certain places we couldn't go and I remember that our time we had spent a long time trying to get there and then when we did get there our time was very very short maybe under an hour 
So those are my experiences with the carceral state. I'm going to bring you in, Mr. Lockett. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I was going to start somewhere else and what you went to. Uh, the young man that was incarcerated because he was with his friend and had done something else. Mm -hmm. that, took me, uh, that took me back to January 6th. Mm. The people that were murdered, the people that lost their lives, mm -hmm. and nobody could start with first. Which shows you our legal system. Because the law is that if you're committing a crime and someone dies in the commission of that crime, everyone's charged with murder. Yeah, from my understanding, this gentleman um, was in the car with someone who had drugs. And not only did they charge the person who had possession of the drugs, they charged everybody that was with him. They all got 20 years. Uh -huh. Now, this was back, I would say, in the 90s, you know, with those horrible war on drug <laughs> policies. But he got 20 years, and it was not his stuff. Uh -huh. But being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and again, this goes back to black mothers and, you know, their fears, especially during that time, of just who their children were with, who they were hanging with. Like, people often talk about black mothers and they talk about how strict they were and all of that. But you had to actually put that into the context of the slave catching that was going on. <laughs> and they're still going on. Right. And so there were things that, like, I know with my mom, because, you know, we grew up in the hood. It was like, if you know where something is happening on a regular basis, as my children, I don't need you to be anywhere near it. I don't need you to be anywhere around it. Don't go by those streets. Don't go to that park. Whatever, you know. And looking back, I can definitely say it was... You know, my mom's fierceness about explaining to us the time we were in and what was happening and what the possible consequences were that she could not pull us out of once we got entrapped into those consequences that helped us. Now, I don't advocate for beating your child. <laughs> I don't advocate for that because that damages the brain. But she was very clear with us as teenagers about what white supremacy had planned for us. <laughs> and if, and if we chose to not follow directions, the very real consequences that we could get caught up into. And once we got caught up into it, there would be nothing that she could do in her situation to get us out because we were poor. <laughs> and so again, if you're already poor, it's like you don't want anything else added to that. And as the writer really kind of laid out, you know, 
though seeing those relatives get incarcerated and you being a poor person, it's like so-and-so has a collect call from so-and-so. It's like, I can't accept. I love you. I want to talk to you, but I might have to save up for a whole month before I can accept the call. Or I might have to save up for a month before I can take a bus ride to the prison facility that you're at to see you, to spend, you know, four to eight hours getting there to only see you for 30 minutes to an hour. And if you got a job, you got to plan that all of that out in months in advance. So I I appreciate the fact that she started detailing some of the barriers that is, is, you know, that people are encountering. And then of course you have black families who may be dealing with the carceral state, right? They're also dealing with aging parents. So there is elder caregiving going on. They may also at this point, if we look at our statistics, may be dealing with a child that has some kind of um, mental health issue going on. Or they may be dealing with a relative and providing support to a relative who may be disabled or dealing with some sort of disability. So it's not even just one thing on the plate of a black family. It will be real about it. Most of us (laughs) are dealing with Several of those dynamics happening at the same time. I know I am in my family. Um, having to provide for extended families for whatever reason. So, you know, they call it the black tax for a reason. It's supposed to, it, the black tax is not just um, the extra fees that we incur in this country for being black. The extra dollar and charges that's put on things for us when people realize we're black. They come to your house and 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 do repairs and when you open the door and they see you're a black person, guess what? Your bill estimate is more than likely going to go up. They're going to charge you more for the same service they're charging somebody down the street. We've experienced that. So it's not just those kinds of black taxes, but black tax also refers to the people who may be doing financially well, but they don't really, but they're still having to take care of extended family members who are not doing as financially well as they are. That too uh-huh. is a black tax. Go ahead. Uh-huh. And I want to talk about my Well, I had an old brother that was in prison. And I remember when I was young and I remember uh, he was like, what? Five, yeah, five years old. And uh, well, he still is five years old. Uh, uh, I, I remember going to see him in prison. And I remember the things that we had to go through. You know, the scanning, the searches, and all that type of stuff that we had to go through to go in and see him. Uh, and I know my own experience. I was locked up. But it wasn't like a third, a sister thing. It was Child support, $500 in back support. It wasn't the system itself that came out to me. It was my ex-wife that worked for the system that had them to come out to me. I remember in there with the judge, and the judge looked at it, and the look on his face was like, why is this man here? 
Mm-hmm. Because I'm in there with people that's back, that own back child support of like $26,000 and, you know, thousands of dollars. But here I am for $500. And here I am for $500. And it wasn't that it wasn't being paid. It was that I, me, you know, he was asking for cash money and I wasn't getting receipts. So she turned around and hit me for what I, w- I had already paid her. And so, you know, we, we have to deal with that too. I mean, let me give, let, let me say this to black women. Okay. Black women, you're not allowed to use you against your people. Don't do that. They're coming and they're going to try and do it, but don't do it. Now, let me shout out to my brother. Men, take care of your responsibility. Women, all through history, if we look all through history, women have had our back. I mean, our culture, okay? our culture, women have had our back. Even freed us on some of those slave ships. That's why so all of them didn't make They've had our back. So this thing about hitting us against each other, how black men are no good, black women are this and that, it's all... It's all propaganda, but you're allowing the propaganda to become real. Mm-hmm. Let's not be a pawn in their game. Let's understand who we are, what we're capable of together, and get that done. Because, I mean, so many things, and see, I know we ain't talking about Kanye today, but <laughs> if you don't mind, I want, to go, I want to go here for one minute. Just a minute. Because I pointed out to somebody, because they're coming at Kanye, I pointed out to them, well, what about all the other stuff that Kanye did that wasn't a problem for anybody? Mm-hmm. Once he started speaking the truth against a certain group of people and letting them know that we are the real people, all of a sudden, oh, he got to get shut down. That's not what it actually did in reality. It actually freed him up. When you think about it, it actually freed him up. Now he don't have those chains on it. Yes, it cut his money down. But he's got money. See? It turned him from a billion out to a, to a simple, simple million. I like, what, about 800 million or something like that? I think the last so estimate just, I saw was 500 million. 500 million, okay, 500 million. What could you do with 500 million? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? If so, you If you listen, manage it right, not work for the rest of your life. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you got you got your own stuff. You got your own stuff, man. Push it. Build your own thing. He's got black banks willing to work with. Mm-hmm. Well, see, now you pull them back to his black people. This is somebody with the voice, regardless of how y'all crazy y'all say he is. No, no I'm, I'm gonna leave that alone. <laughs> but uh. It shouldn't get any pushback. Or none. There's no comparison. It shouldn't get any pushback. It it shouldn't. It shouldn't. Our problem is that we've allowed a separation. 
Mm-hmm. If that's our problem, let's let's do it with that separation. And their biggest fear will come to life, which is black man and black woman operating together in unity. Because there's so much that would be done at that point. And again, the reality is, if there is no black family, there is no humanity. Right. Exactly. Because that's where it began. Without a, yeah. without a black family, you would not have populated the peoples of the earth. Uh-huh. So, it would behoove us, I'm just saying, just even scientifically, it would behoove us to encourage black family to come together because without the continuance of black family, there ain't no continuance of humanity. So my thing is argue with your scientists. Don't argue with me. (laughs) I'm not the one who figured that out. Argue with the scientists. Don't argue with me. Well, see, see, that's going to be rejected because it doesn't fit the narrative. It's going to be ignored. Let me put it that way. It'll be ignored because it doesn't fit the narrative. And this is one thing I love about science, okay? They set out to prove one thing and end up proving something else. Always. The, tr- the truth comes out. See? They always end up with the truth. Always. Go figure. And it's supposed okay, to be a- it's supposed to be an objective process. So if your if all uh-huh. your science points to black women as being the mothers of all human society and creation of humanity, then go with the science. What is the science? I already uh-huh. told you. But again, uh-huh. um, I'm going to just say it like this. The people of Paller have figured this out. Uh-huh. That's why you see uh-huh. more of them trying to marry black women. And uh-huh. it behooves them for you, black man, to discard the mother of all DNA. Uh-huh. I'm just saying. That works to their advantage. So, you know, most black women have seen this for a while that, you know, okay, if you if you allow someone to convince you out of your natural counterpart and then you turn around and see them marrying your counterpart after they've convinced you out of marrying your counterpart, what does that tell you? You're not too bright. That's what I'm gonna say on uh-huh. it. <laughs> well, see, well, see, listen again. You just, you just went into history. Raised were bad until Derek War. Yep. Everything we bring along is bad. And then some our counterpart. Let me put it that way. We know how how these people work. The counterpart picks it up. Oh, and then all of a sudden, it's this great thing. So it was great when we were doing it. It will always... You put a, you put a, you put a stigma on it. You stigmatized it, you know. Yeah, I mean, once, it, it, once they can appropriate it, copy it, duplicate it, um, then it no longer becomes stigmatized. And, I mean, this to me uh-huh. is like a wash, rinse, repeat. We see it over and over and over again. It's like, I just need you all to see it. It's only bad until they learn how to do it or be it or copy it. And then it's perfectly uh-huh. fine. <laughs> uh-huh. 
So again, same thing with black women. It's only bad until they learn how to duplicate it, copy it, appropriate it, or make it their own. Uh huh. So all I'm going to say is just be wise. Be wiser in this hour. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I've been your host today, Shantae Charles. I do want to thank you all for your time and attention. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so continue to go out and be what, Pastor Ben? Light. Be light. I hope this conversation has um, got you thinking about the prison industrial complex and its role in the lives of black women, black men, and black love. Take care and we'll see you next Tuesday.